chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section... Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Lord, we ask that you would take Oh, some of this hard stuff, stuff that is very, very ancient and culturally far removed from our experience of you and help us with this knowledge to understand you better and to grow in our faith, to grow in our ready, willing, and desired reception of your grace over and abundant in our lives, Lord. Because that's what we need. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, to lead us tonight. In your name, amen. Amen. Biblically speaking, every once in a while you come up to a topic that's important to stop and talk a little bit about. The gospel is such a topic. In fact, it is such a topic that you will find very rarely will I preach a sermon where I don't in some way, shape, or form come back around to the gospel. And I believe it's so important and so makes up the totality of scripture that I can't, it's not a stretch for me to take any text and get to the gospel. Jesus is, as it were, on every page. The gospel is the very blood that flows through the scripture itself. 
Well, if the gospel is that, this one particular word, and I'm going to try not to camp on this one word like I did last week, but who knows? The Lord knows. Maybe this is what he wants us to do. We'll see. But this word is the word covenant. And I like to think of this word not so much as the blood that gives life, right? Moses said that we're not to, when we kill an animal and eat it, drink the blood, because that's where the life of that animal comes from. The gospel is life. It's vibrancy. It's vitality. Now, the covenant is more like the structure, I think of the covenant, if I think of the same kinds of terms, bodily speaking is the skeleton. It makes me who I am. It, I'm this and I'm not a fish. Or I'm not a monkey or I'm not an ostrich or I'm not an whatever a thing I'm a bobber. <laughs> I'm a human being and I have this structure and you can tell that I am and you can, it's clearly indicated. You, right? There's whole fields of science where they go and they look at bones and they can tell you what animal it came from, what part of the animal it came from and whatnot. The word covenant is, as it were, the structure of Scripture. And because the gospel is the life of Scripture and gives life to us, if covenant is the framework of Scripture, we ought to also be very interested in how the covenant works. Agreed? Something, folks. Okay. Look at verse 13, the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 8. In speaking of a new covenant, he, Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. You see the flow of thought, right? The writer, I said Jesus, because Jesus is the warp and woof of Scripture. Granted, Jeremiah wrote it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's Jesus. I'll just say that. I'm okay with that. In speaking of a new covenant made the first one obsolete. Now, many of you like myself, came from a tradition where these two covenants represented two distinct peoples and a lot of times, if it wasn't outright said, was implied two ways or forms of salvation. If you're familiar with that system, it's popularly called dispensationalism. That's a big clunky phrase, if I'm honest. But what it means, in a nutshell, to sum it up, is that there are two distinct dispensations or periods of time or ways that God has worked in all of human history in bringing redemption to his people. The first big dispensation, and I'm not going to be nitpicky and go through all the seven of them, okay? I know that they're there. Follow me with this. The big one, though, is the Old Covenant. Moses gave these Ten Commandments, and with these Ten Commandments and the establishment of the nation of Israel in Abraham, combined with the law being given, you have 
the way God worked in times past. Namely, he saved the Jews as they followed the law of God. And as they believed in God and trusted in God and did whatever God told them to do in that law, they as a Jew would be saved. And so you have the Jews as a special people, the apple of God's eye, God's chosen people. And today how that manifests itself is that people, Christians, godly, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, have a special and particular emphasis on the nation of Israel still today. And so they will focus on Israel, take tours of Israel, talk about Israel, and they still talk about them in terms of the old covenant. They are God's chosen people. They are the apple of God's eye. God brought them back into the nation, May 14th, 1948. God did this glorious miracle of bringing them back into this land. And it is as it were that God is almost, I don't want to be pejorative, but it's going to sound like that, I get it, but it's almost as if God's redemption is somewhat schizophrenic. That here, these people are saved by the law. Now, faith for sure, but faith acts in the law. Faith works in performing the rituals, sacrifices, up until the temple was destroyed, and then it was them trusting in the promises that God was going to restore and rebuild the temple, and they lived as best they could consistently with the Old Covenant, Old Testament law, until that time where a temple is rebuilt. It all works, you see. It's still a lot of duty and a lot of action. Whereas the New Covenant, this new way God works, is just purely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And there are these two paths, and... Oh, may they never mix. May they never mingle together. That's probably, it's simplistic, I understand. But I think it's helpful because what I want to show is that what we would say scripture does is not give two different means of salvation or ways of getting to the Lord or two different chosen people of God. But instead, there has always been, in God's mind, in God's understanding, one people of his, and he has always saved by covenant. Okay? So if you have your hymnal, let me teach you a little lesson, okay? If you go and visit another church, oftentimes, not always, in the back of their hymnal, you will find their confession of faith. In the back of our hymnal is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. On page 674, specifically, is a section entitled, Of God's Covenant. Now, if you want later on, don't do it now, but if you pick up in your pews there, the book with the cross on it, on this side of the church it's blue and on this side it's red, you'll find the 39 articles, which are, is the statement, the confession of faith that the Anglican Church holds as their confession. We have a confession that is more... Full. (laughs) Not just more words, but I think it's a little richer in its explanation of things as well. Hopefully you're at the chapter I want you to look at right now. Normally I wouldn't read a big, long, lengthy 
quote. But what I want to do is I want to walk through this and I want you to see what exactly it is that the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Okay? Because it's all right here. Number one, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, they could never have attained the reward of life. But by some voluntary concession on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So following so far, so far he's saying, God is so God. Holiness, right? That's what we talked about last week, God's holiness. God is so holy And we as his creatures are so inferior to that holiness that although we know and have an understanding that we owe him obedience, we can never, ever accomplish that obedience. So the only way any one of us is going to experience life is if God condescends to save us. And the confession is saying the way that God has chosen to do that is through covenant. Okay? Following me so far? Following so far? Number two, moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by the fall, it pleased the Lord, it pleased God to make a covenant of grace wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that he may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained to eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So, the fall cursed us all. God, in his grace, said, I'm going to make a covenant of grace with them that upon belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him alone will one receive salvation and eternal life. Now, God knows making that covenant isn't enough. So, on top of making the covenant, he gives the Holy Spirit who comes into the sinner's life, who convicts us of our sin, and all those who are elect of God have their heart of stone taken out, a heart of flesh put in, and we respond with faith, belief, and trust in Jesus Christ, and God gives us grace. Following so far? Here's where what we're looking at comes in. Number three. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. First to Adam. Do you hear that? This covenant. Now, one of the things that dispensationalism will argue with us about is the fact that all of these times and periods are different ways that God deals with people. And in fact, sometimes would even go so far as to save people differently. What the confession and what we are saying is that's not the case. That God made a covenant all the way back with Adam and it hasn't changed. We may be changed because of the fall, but God's covenant hasn't. Look what, it's, look what he goes on to say. First of all to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. And afterwards, by further steps, until the discovery, pardon me, the full discovery thereof, was complete in the New Testament. 
and is founded in the eternal covenant and transaction that is between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect and is alone by grace in the covenant that all of the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality. Man being utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms which Adam stood in his state of innocency. Where we're at right now is this little phrase, afterwards by further steps. Okay? That's where we find ourselves here. Adam fell, and God had revealed in that covenant with Adam salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and God's word alone. And that would be, Adam, don't eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the implication is, if you fulfill your end of the covenant, I will therefore give you the tree of life, right? Because remember in Genesis chapter 3, one of the things God says is, now that Adam has fallen and he knows good and evil, we need to keep him from the tree of life. And so God hedges the tree of life by casting Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and setting that angel up with the flaming sword, whatever in the world that was. But that covenant was not done away with, destroyed. Instead, it was revealing further and further and further and further truths so that when God chose Abraham out of all of the peoples of the world, he was showing that in his covenant, he was going to save people whom he chose. You go further on down the road to Moses, and he's given the law. We see right here the first first covenant. And what we find in that covenant is God's holy and righteous standard that is required of everybody who would ever be saved or have life in him. Here what we find is that we don't fulfill this part of the law. We can't. In fact, that's the whole point of what we're looking at right here. So I feel confident getting through these next 10 verses in just a few minutes here because really that's what we're looking at is we can't do any of this stuff. And it all points to Jesus Christ himself anyways. It it doesn't point to us. It points to him. The first covenant had regulations for worship. And an earthly place of holiness. Last week we talked about holiness because that's important. Because if we don't understand God's holiness, then we're never going to understand the richness of our salvation in him. We won't understand our depravity. We won't understand how far we are from God and his goodness. And if we don't understand his holiness, then it's going to be very, really hard for us to understand and wrestle with this covenant kind of thing. So these two go hand in hand. You see, God's holiness and his covenant. Now what's a covenant? Talked a lot about it already. But what is it? Some people say, call marriage a covenant. Maybe you might hear popularly in the culture in like TV shows or movies or maybe even you've had friends say it, I have, say, Oh, marriage, you know, it's all well and good, but really in the end, it's just a piece of paper. Right? Have you heard anybody ever say that? Yeah, it's good, but that's just a piece of paper. Our love is stronger than a piece of paper. 
right? I mean, me and Andy, oh my gosh, our love is so much stronger than a piece of paper. We don't need a piece of paper to say that we love each other. There's something important about that piece of paper. The paper in and of itself isn't what makes marriage marriage or weddings weddings. What is important is the fact that I stand across from my bride-to-be and I stand in the front of witnesses before a minister and in the presence of God himself and I make vows to my wife and I make these covenantal vows, words of assurance, words of actions I will perform for her and then she likewise makes vows to me and in that moment is where the marriage takes place the piece, the piece of paper is our signatures that we send off to the state letting them know that we have entered into covenant together in marriage through the exchange of vows the words are important because they are promises a covenant is a promise A covenant is words that God has promised to us and we are required to believe and trust in those promises. Sometimes the covenant was displayed in not only words for us to accept, but also for actions for us to perform. But those actions for us to perform only led to the realization we can't do what it is we're supposed to do. And so what do we do? We just trust God to save us because he's promised to do us, to do that for us. So this is what a covenant is, okay? The first covenant, the first words of promise to us, the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. So the words of worship, or pardon me, regulations of worship, were all the trappings of the law, right? It's the sacrifices, it's all of those kind of things. And the place of holiness is the tabernacle, that tent that was set up. Now, the rest of this first part of our passage is an explanation of that tent, of that tabernacle. Now, notice what he says. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That's the end of verse 5. And you all voted for me to slow down. That's fine, but I don't want to do just a word at a time. (laughs) So I'm going to try to pick it up a little bit. I am not going to speak in detail about every single one of these pieces of furniture, okay? There are great books out there. In fact, there's one book called Made According to Pattern that is helpful. It's helpful, I'll say that. If you want to borrow my copy, you're more than welcome to. But it'll walk you through every single thing. Why are the blue threads necessary? Why are the gold threads necessary? Why is silver at the bottom of the post that hold the tabernacle up and not brass like in some of the other sections? Oh, everything. It'll walk, it walks you through everything. And I find it to be helpful. What I find it to be unhelpful in is people have the tendency to just focus on all of this minutia when the whole point of it is to point us to Christ. Okay? So this is why I don't want us to get bogged down here because I don't want us to get all like, ooh, 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 the cherubim overshadow. Ooh, I don't want us to do that. I want us to go, oh, Jesus. Right? 
That's what we're here for. So, a tent was prepared, verse 2. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence is called the holy place. So, check out my piece of paper here. It is not accurate in terms of its dimensions, so bear with that. Nick, especially you. <laughs> there was, it was divided up into two parts. Two-thirds of the tabernacle was what we're talking about right here, the holy place. Okay? In here was on the right-hand side. On the right-hand side was the bread of presence, or the table where they would bake 12 loaves of bread every single week, and they would go place that bread on those tables, symbolizing God's provision for his people, that God always provides for his people. That's what the bread symbolized. You remember in that one story where, and, and the priests were only allowed to eat it. They baked it, and at the end of the week, they were the only ones allowed. Remember David that one time he was running away, and he went to the priest, and he's like, hey, you got a sword? And he's like, I got Goliath. That'll do. You got anything to eat? I got the showbread. That'll do. Gives him the showbread, right? And David takes the showbread with all his buddies, and they take off running. To sum up, but that's what happened. They ate the showbread, and God wasn't offended or upset because it was important for them to eat. Jesus, in fact, says so later on. But that was on the right-hand side. On the left-hand side was a lampstand. And it was one piece of hammered gold with seven jobbies. <laughs> I don't know the technical term. I'm trying to think of what it is. But you put the oil and the wick in there and you light the thing and it does the light in the little thing. So you get it, right? It was the only light that was in the, tab- the tabernacle and of the temple that wasn't the very glory of God itself. And that was symbolic of God's Constant illumination to his people, giving of his word to his people, giving them light when they were in darkness. God doesn't owe anybody his own illumination, but he freely gives it to his people. Then there was a curtain that went across here, and then inside the Holy of Holies, which, let's look at verse 4, has the golden altar of incense. The Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. And inside the Ark was an urn. And it held manna. Aaron's staff that budded. And the tablets of the covenant. Okay? So here it says that there are two pieces of furniture in there. Number one, it says the altar of incense is in there. Now, properly speaking, that wasn't true. Properly speaking... The place where the physical table rested was just outside the curtain. It was literally the curtain, and it sat right in front of the curtain. And every day the priest would come in there and offer the incense. But the reason why it's included in there is because of the symbolism of its function. It symbolizes the prayer of God's people always constantly being before his presence. And so while the table sat just outside the curtain, the incense didn't. And it wafted back into the holy place, symbolizing the prayers of God's people always going before his presence. So this is why the writer of Hebrews includes this piece of furniture on the inside, because the symbolism of it actually has it there. But 
the priest couldn't go back there every time, right? Because we read here, only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies once a year. So it wouldn't be very good to have an altar in there that you could go in and offer incense, which symbolized prayers, could you? So that's why it sat outside, but yet properly, symbolically speaking, it actually belonged inside the Holy of Holies. So hopefully there's no confusion there. But inside is the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. I had a little toy. <laughs> and you put the little poles in there and it was, it was fun. It was one of my favorite little toys. I pro- it's pro- my mom probably still has it around somewhere in some storage or something. But it was, a, it was a box. It was covered with gold. It had on top of it, you'll see the word there overshadowing the mercy seat. That's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Mercy seat is a translation. It literally means the propitiation thing. That's a good word. It's a little clunky though, right? Mercy seat, just like the mercy seat. That sounds so much better. And it is. It's the place where we go to seek mercy. Now, you'll notice that I skipped over what's inside there. Golden urn that has manna. Aaron's staff that budded. And the tablets of the covenant. First of all, the urn that has the manna in it symbolized God's provision for his people. This is a weird thing because they were hungry out in the wilderness and they prayed, Oh Lord, I'm super hungry. And God had manna come down. And the word manna, you know, right? It means, what is it? It's, what the, huh? Huh? That's, that's what it means. And they would come out every morning and they'd pick up the, huh? And they'd eat it all day. And if you took more than was necessary for that day, when you woke up in the morning, it was all funky and festering with worms and stuff. Except on the Sabbath. You could get two days worth on Friday and take you all the way through the Sabbath to Sunday and it wouldn't turn funky. That's weird, right? God's cool like that. Because it symbolized his provision once again for his people. It's important for us. Beloved, you all want to feel secure. Security is some, it's, it's vital for human existence. We need to feel secure. We need it in our relationships to feel secure in our relationships. We need physically to feel secure. Financially to feel secure. We need the feeling of security in our lives or else we live in a place of constant anxiety and fret and turmoil. One of the things the manna teaches us is that, and one of the things showbread teaches us twice in this one passage, that God will provide for his own. Are you his? Then God will take care of you, beloved. You see the birds? Did you walk in here and hear, see any birds, hear any birds? We, me and Charlotte sat out on the front porch the other night and just watched birds. And she'd go, woo, ma, woo. That's kind of the word she uses. I'm like, yeah, look at that bird, Charlotte. It's beautiful. But I have never seen a bird fall into my yard with a plow and start plowing back and forth, you know, and planting seeds and start, you know, that's silly, right? They don't toil, they don't labor, and they're always fed and they're always taken care of by our Father. Jesus said so, right? Matthew chapter 6. And he says, but I'll tell you what. 
you are of more value than all of the birds in existence. And if God so takes care of the birds, he will certainly take care of you. That communicates provision and that communicates security to us. Aaron's staff that budded. Remember that story? Aaron is Moses' brother and the people of Israel thought Moses and his brother are doing something shady. It's a family thing. Oh, God picked the family of Moses, huh? How convenient for them. So, in light of that, the nation of Israel and a whole bunch of other leaders came to Aaron and said, we don't think you should be the leader. We think we should be the leader. We think you just decided I'm going to take this role of leadership and it isn't God at all. And so Moses went into the tabernacle and was like, oh Lord, what should we do here? This could turn bad quick. And God said, have everybody who wants to be the priest, who wants to be leader, take their walking sticks and lay it down before me here in the tabernacle overnight. So they did it. And when they woke up in the morning and came back to the tabernacle, one of those walking sticks had produced branches and out of those branches produced leaves and out of those leaves produced blossoms overnight, not connected to anything else. And it was Aaron's staff. This symbolizes God's purpose. The beloved, God has a purpose and a plan and an order, and he knows exactly what he's doing. And we can trust him and have confidence in it. And the last one here that's inside the Ark of the Covenant is the table, the tablets of the covenant. Now, most people like alliteration. So I gave you a little bit of alliteration here. God's provision, God's purpose, and God's precepts. But I don't like alliteration. So I said God's law. <laughs> just to change it. Because who knows what a precept is anyways, right? It's just a word you look up when you need to use alliteration. But God's law. The Ten Commandments. So you have the Ten Commandments in there. You have Aaron's staff that budded. And you have the jar of manna. And inside it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, verse 6, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their duties, right? Pouring the oil in the jobbies and baking the bread and putting it on the table. They did that all the time. Into the second place... Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And even when he goes in there, it's not without blood. No, he has to offer for his own sins, sacrifice for his own, kill an animal on his own. Man, that, that's hardcore. And then do it again, and that's for the unintentional sins of the people. In verse 8, by this, by all of this, everything we've just looked at. What's the point? We talked about covenant. We talked about all this stuff. What in the world is the point of this? Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age.
There's this passage in Matthew. I, I, when, uh, yeah, I'm gonna. Yes, my. <laughs> I have this. My favorite piece of art. I've talked about this probably, but I love this. It's a beautiful picture. The foreground is a cross, and on the cross is nailed the law, with blood dripping down off of it, symbolizing Christ bore the wrath that my failure of keeping that law deserved on the cross. Then right behind the cross is the veil of the temple torn from top to bottom. So that now when I look at the cross and I see the law nailed onto the cross and I look past the cross, I see into the Holy of Holies where the very Ark of the Covenant is. And this is what that symbolizes, beloved, that that old age is over. What's the point of this? The point of this is that all of this trappings, all of this stuff is all designed to point us to Jesus. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that can not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What do you do then? Beloved, If you come to worship the Lord, you come to worship God Almighty, but everything you do will not perfect your conscience. That you walk out of there just as guilty as you did when you came in. You get to the point where you think, what is the point? I do this all the time. I'm constantly, I can't, I can't. I can't measure up. I can't keep doing it. It's just too much. And God says, yes. Yes, beloved, because my covenant to you is that I will save my people from their sins as they would believe in me. Not laws in a box. I'll write my laws on your heart. Not my purpose on a stick with some flowers on it, but my purpose for you is one of my chosen people. Not my provision with some weirdo bread and some urn and some box, but instead I will provide for you everything you need before you even ask of it. And I will provide for it in such a way that you will receive mercy and propitiation from your sins. That's just a big fancy word for absolute and complete forgiveness. What propitiation is, is what the old covenant couldn't do. Propitiation is a perfection of your conscience. Whereas the old covenant could never offer that and never provide that for you. All they could deal was with food and drink and washings and regulations imposed on the body until the time of reformation. And beloved, the time of reformation is for us in the person of Jesus Christ. To close, look at Romans 3 with me, please. Romans 3. Let's start in verse 23. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what all this stuff, the trappings teach us. We've sinned. We need Jesus. We are justified 
No longer by works and ritual and foods and washings and sacrifices, but verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 8 said, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. I want to tell you on the night before Jesus was crucified, he looked to his disciples and he said, Beloved, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one has access to God. No one goes behind the veil apart from me. We receive propitiation, meaning salvation, mercy as a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Beloved, all of this, the writer of Hebrews is looking and he's begging. You, I can almost picture him down on his knees to these people who are struggling with falling back into their old Jewishness or their old Jewish mysticism and saying, please don't go back to that. That is over. It was symbolic of that age, but now we have Jesus. We have Jesus. Beloved, he is everything and the time of reformation is not 1500. The time of reformation is in Jesus Christ and in him alone because in him and him alone do we have the very salvation that the covenant God made with Adam points us to and that we all as people so desperately need. Lord, I ask that you would take a lot of these obscure and hard things to think about and think through, Lord, and just may they be meat for our soul. Lord, may they be the very thing that we experienced hearing them and be that point of contact for our faith, Lord. May we latch on to these truths that all of this pointed to you and that you are the glorious fulfillment of the very covenant that you gave to Adam. Of the very covenant you gave to Abraham. Of the very covenant you gave to Moses. Of the very covenant you gave to David. And all of it is to be found in you, Jesus. Our Lord, our Savior, our glory, our hero, our King. Thank you, Lord, for your radical, amazing salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.